ladies and gentlemen and non-binary friends, welcome to this fourth episode of the Incredible Playable Podcast. My name is Alistair Aitchison, I'm the host and creator of an interactive stage show called The Incredible Playable Show, in which I play a character called The Incredible Playable Man, and thus this is my Incredible Playable Podcast. In the podcast, I take a look at things from the world of art, the world of play and performance, and see how they are connected to video games, interactivity, and all things creative. In today's show, I will be looking at the artist Man Ray and his connection to hacking the Sonic the Hedgehog games. So sit back, grab yourself a chili dog, or whatever food Man Ray eats, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. It's funny, like, there are certain moments where I find myself needing to grip the controller differently because you need to make these kind of very precise, timed, go right a little bit, and then jump kind of moments. In the early 1920s, the surrealist artist Man Ray took sheets of photographic paper and stack them on top of randomly assorted objects. Springs, feathers, cigarette lighters, scissors, and then he exposed them to light. He took the paper and developed it, and called the resulting black and white prints rayographs. The rayographs looked like these strange geometric combinations of abstract shapes and familiar objects out of context. A stark white hairpin in perfect focus on top of something that looks vaguely like a bowl or a cone. A spring, the nearby side of the coil sharp and thin, with the far side faint and blurry looming in the background, curling into some indistinct vortex. Sometimes what the objects are is obvious. The shape of a pair of scissors is iconic, easily recognisable. And sometimes it's a total mystery. Is that a matchbox standing up on its smallest side? Is it wire wool? Is it moss? Or hair? Or has someone attacked the photo paper with a compass, scratching away dense spirals as it developed? If you Google the word rayograph, You can see all kinds of strange black and white images. To me, the most beautiful ones are the ones where you can't really tell what the objects are. Where you see these perfectly sharp three-dimensional hills and valleys, curves and gradients, but you can't quite picture what object would have created them. But you feel like you could if it was just a little more in focus, or if you could see it from another angle. These rayographs are not just static images. They're visual puzzles, inviting you to figure them out. As you wanted it to. Like, you get this really pleasant sensation of control where you used to have where you have none, like there, like I felt like I very quickly figured out which button was which. 
Man Ray said of his rare graphs that they were closer to paintings than they were to photographs. They were composed by performing an action on the paper on which the image would be made, much like a painter would apply paint onto the medium in which the painting is going to be seen, the canvas. But in other ways, they were more photograph than even photographs. Man Ray didn't choose a good landscape, point his camera at it and shoot. He engaged directly with the mechanisms of photography. The interaction of light with photographic paper. That's not to say that good photographers don't interact with the mechanisms of the camera, but that the mechanism of the camera is not the primary focus of their creative input. The rareographs create this vivid sense of a 3D space. The part of the object that rests on the paper is in sharp focus, but the parts of the object that are far away are blurry. They create this strange reverse perspective, where objects that are far away from the surface loom larger because they're closer to the light source. Objects that are far away should be smaller. And so you get these images that are both incredibly realistic and yet somehow unreal. At the same time, part of the fun of these pictures is knowing how they were made. Man Ray was a dadaist, and part of what they wanted to do was upturn the notion of what painting was and what photography was. And unless you knew how these images were created, that challenge to painting and photography wouldn't carry. But for me, as a viewer, enjoying the game of looking at these unreal images and trying to understand what objects went into making them, I'm trying to picture this process for myself. I'm trying to figure out what is going on inside the rayographer's studio. How it was made is only half explained, and filling in the other half is part of the fun. Like where you have these little moments of clarity where you're like, okay, I figured out which button is which, and, and you have that in your head, it's, it's weird because it's like this kind of moment of stress relief almost, like, like for 10 seconds I have this figured out. Recently, I've been working on modifying a Sega Mega Drive emulator. A game emulator is a bit of software that allows you to play old video games on your computer. Instead of plugging a Sega Mega Drive cartridge into a Sega Mega Drive console, you load up a ROM, a data file containing the exact same data that was stored on that cartridge, and the emulator, as a program, looks at that data and runs it as if the computer were the real game console. The emulator I've been working with is called Genesis Plus GX, and it's open source, which means that I can look at the source code and add my own routines into it. The console's memory is stored as simply an array of bytes, a big long sequence of numbers between 0 and 255 and I can add in code to my version of this emulator to change what's in that memory. 
So for example, when you're playing Sonic the Hedgehog, there is a byte in memory that stores how many rings Sonic has collected. And there is a sequence of bytes that's used to determine what ground and slopes and walls make up the level. I can add in a function that checks to see if Sonic has collected a ring by checking to see if that number has changed. And if he has, I can make the console choose a random byte from the level layout and replace it with a random number. The result is a new version of this familiar game. It's Sonic the Hedgehog, but every time Sonic collects a ring, the level will change in some unpredictable way. My first experiments with changing the way we interact with classic games was in 2016, when I took the controller I'd made for a game called Codex Bash and repurposed it to be a Sonic the Hedgehog controller shared between four players. My next experiment involved opening up this emulator and adding in these new rules like I just described, which read from memory and write from memory, and I used these to make videos that I uploaded to YouTube. In the videos, I and my friends tried to beat the game with these strange challenges added in. I played around with continuously writing random numbers into memory until the games crashed, seeing what cool visual effects would happen and taking screenshots of my favourite ones which I ended up turning into t-shirts. In 2018, I made all these hacked versions of the game into a stage show, where I dressed as Dr. Eggman and, acting as a game show host, I invited my audience to come on stage and compete in these challenges. Incidentally, this work uh, meant I needed to get two instances of the emulator running side by side, operated by two different controllers, and interacting with a live scoreboard so the audience could see who was ahead and who was behind in each race. It's actually a lot more technically demanding than I thought it would be, um, but it is a bit of a jerry-rigging marvel that I'm still really proud of. In 2019, I applied the same principles to an emulator for the Nintendo Game Boy. I used it to make a piece of video art out of Pokemon Red, where the game world would decay and corrupt the more Pokemon you fought and collected. The idea was that I wanted to take this simulated ecosystem and add to it a sense of environmental decay. Last year I returned to the Mega Drive and I added features designed to experiment with the experience of play itself. I played Sonic the Hedgehog without sprites, just with the backgrounds, so I had to rely on my memory of the screen layouts and the fact that Sonic was always at the middle of the screen. In the boss arenas, the camera would no longer centre on Sonic, so I had to imagine where he was, and imagine where the boss was, and imagine where the boss's wrecking ball weapon swinging back and forth would be. Four, five, six. Two, three, four, five, six. Two, three. Four, I had to develop a routine five, of six, jumps and side to side running two, through trial and error. Four, 
I came up with a pattern that was slow and laborious, but seemed to be successful for long enough. But I'd always have a moment where my plan went wrong. I'd hear the tinkle of dropped rings that meant I had made a mistake, and Sonic was hurt, and I had to improvise in a panic to try and rescue the attempt. It made me aware of the many subtle cues and prior expectations that I used to navigate these 2D environments. Visual tricks like keeping the character in the middle of the screen made it easy to imagine where I was going without really looking at the screen. You notice how important these are when you throw yourself into a context where these are no longer valid and you can't use them as a crutch. I played Sonic the Hedgehog where the controls would randomly shuffle every 10 seconds. It was mentally exhausting, and I was made very much aware of how much of my play is reliant on me forgetting about the controller in my hands. After about half an hour, my brain had turned to mush from all these attempts to, over and over again, reinterpret in my mind what the controller was supposed to do rewire the systems that were supposed to be automatic. I played Sonic the Hedgehog where every time he collected a ring, a colour was removed from the world. The rows of pixels would collapse into the middle to fill the missing space, like they were being sucked into a black hole. My ability to navigate collapsed too, as the geometry that I could see became these weird ripples that no longer matched the rigid Cartesian grids they were supposed to depict. Unlike the other videos, this one I recorded without commentary. I wanted to focus on the imagery and the sounds that collapsed inwards in the same way that the graphics did. I first found out about Man Ray's rareographs when I read a book called Surrealism at Play by Susan Laxton. I think about what Man Ray was trying to achieve, using the equipment of photography to subvert what a photograph could be, and I can see a close connection to what I was trying to achieve with the emulator, using the software of video games to explore what gameplay can be. The way the rayographs confound perception by warping perspective, making faraway objects appear larger than those that are near, mirrors the effect that scrambling Sonic's levels warps and changes the activity of playing a game of Sonic the Hedgehog. Level layouts emerge that are no longer fast and elegant, but clumsy and awkward. They require problem solving they may not even be beatable. The rareographs highlight the three-dimensional reality of the objects that made them. Scrambling Sonic levels highlights the digital reality of the games. In the reality of Sonic, levels are not a tropical paradise of rolling hills and loop-de-loops. They are numbers. And these numbers are interpreted as square chunks arranged on a grid. Only when this arrangement is done by a human being 
Do they resemble a tropical paradise of rolling hills and loop-de-loops? Man Ray's rareographs represent a surrender to the unpredictable. The artist didn't know what the photo would look like when he placed his objects on the photo paper. I didn't know what playing Sonic would be like when I decided to remove all the sprites. I made a version of the emulator that could switch between games on the fly. I added a rule so that whenever Sonic gets a ring, it switches to another game. Sonic picks up a ring in one game and arrives at the moment where he had just collected a ring in another game. Levels flash in and out of existence, and the player smoothly carries their movements from one game to the other. The player needs to react in a split second to the new threats, and these threats often disappear as fast as they appeared in the first place. On top of this, I realised that the video memory, the data that tells the console what graphics should be drawn onto the screen, could be changed however I wanted without crashing the games. So I made it so that image data from your previous game could be carried over to the new one. It created these unpredictable mangles of colours and shapes. I took my favourite of the strange images that it created and had them printed on cushions. My favourite rayographs are the ones where you can just about but not quite tell what the objects are. My favourite emulator images are the ones where you can tell what images have been stuck in memory and been recycled into new objects. It's much more satisfying when Sonic's head has been replaced with a television than when it's been replaced with a garbled mess. I love the ones where text from one game has been interpreted as backgrounds and scenery in another. You can recognise the random assortment of letters, but you can't quite be sure what they're trying to draw. The Surrealists wanted to break free from the need to match the physical exactness of the real world. I wanted to make games that no longer needed to be winnable, or even playable. Breaking the games was now the act of playing the games. The Surrealists used chance and play, to quote Susan Laxton, to open the possibility of a transformative encounter with the unknown. I wanted my unpredictable Sonic challenges to teach me about my mind when I play by throwing it into an unpredictable situation. The Surrealists wanted to radicalise uselessness. I'm making these games unplayable, turning them into something useless as a way to find something beautiful within that frustration. The Surrealists co-opted mass-produced culture by taking magazine clippings and turning them into collages. What's cheaper than the 524 kilobyte ROM file for Sonic the Hedgehog? What's more mass-produced than one of the most ported video games in history? The Surrealist light rules that, to quote Laxton again, seemed to turn on themselves. Machine-like processes with unpredictable rather than uniform results. 
evoking machines that were, in a sense, thrown into reverse, made unproductive or nonsensical. What were the Surrealists trying to do? They wanted to use art to reach deep inside the psyche. They were inspired by the new science of psychology, ideas about the unconscious, the work of Sigmund Freud. The predecessors to the Surrealists were the Dadaists, who emerged after the First World War, drawing on randomness as a reflection of the chaotic and hopeless reality of 20th century life. They used machine-like creative processes as a parody of the new mechanised warfare and the horrors of a war machine that had cost millions of lives in the First World War. The Dadaists wanted to create art to inspire political disruption. But what am I trying to do? I don't think I have a cause. I've just been making this stuff because I find it interesting. I mean, there's certainly things I believe in. I believe in not putting the classics on a pedestal. I believe in freeing ourselves up to chance and the unpredictable. I believe in rejecting perfectionism and embracing flexibility. I believe in trusting gut feel. I believe in accepting getting it wrong. I believe in rejecting any assumption that I know what is best. I believe in letting my audience be equal partners in my creative practice. Most of my beliefs are about the relationship of an artist to themselves and to their work. Or, more accurately, to myself and my work. In a sense, I'm a lot closer to the Surrealists who looked inward than the Dadaists who looked outward. Except for this bit. I believe in allowing my audience to be equal partners in my creative practice. Ever since I started hacking around with this Mega Drive emulator, I've been thinking about how I can bring this stuff to the outside world. Like, it's all well and good to make these weird visual effects by writing random numbers into memory until the game crashes but it doesn't mean much if the viewer doesn't understand where they come from. Part of the fun of the rayographs is that you can conceivably decipher what objects had created them. It's easy to explain how the rayographs are made, because, technical as the process is, it's relatively simple, especially when compared to the workings of a computer. I filmed my friends playing the earliest hacks in 2016. My hope was that seeing their responses would give an audience a way into the mind of a player as they're dealing with these unusual tasks, but it didn't quite work. While the player's frustration at the challenges was obvious, it wasn't really clear what was going on in their minds. My friends hadn't had nearly the amount of experience I had playing Sonic. They found themselves getting stuck in complex, randomly generated level layouts. Layouts that I would have been able to jerry-rig my way out of. It highlighted that even the most forgiving of games are 
actually quite technical. I had more luck turning these same challenges into a stage show, which I called The Scrambled Eggman Show. It's a show which I hosted at game festivals in 2018 and 2019, where audiences competed side by side to beat these same hacky, glitchy challenges. The competition made it a lot easier to enjoy the chaos. Players no longer needed to be good at the games, they just needed to be better than their opponent. Obstacles that cropped up because of the hacking were now comedic instead of frustrating. An overconfident player who threw themselves into a randomly generated death pit was hoist by their own petard. A losing player falling into the same trap would become a poor underdog who just couldn't catch a break. The audience's new hero. But something was still missing. The audience was able to enjoy these hacks, but they weren't able to freely play with them. They played within my constraints. Three minutes around. Two players at a time. The goal is to win. There was a creative experience that I was enjoying hacking around with the code that I wasn't communicating to my audience. Why should this joy be limited to people with my programming ability? In September last year, I created the feature that switches between games every time Sonic gets a ring. I posted a short video of it to Twitter and it got over 3,000 retweets. People seem to really attach to this idea. I think it's the simplicity of it. It's absolute chaos. Beating a level looks horrific, but also weirdly achievable. It requires no technical knowledge to understand what's going on. Every time that Sonic collects a ring, it switches to a different game. That's it. I wrapped up all of my work on this emulator into a version that I could release publicly, and called it Alistair's Magic Box. As well as the functionality to switch between games whenever Sonic gets a ring, Alistair's Magic Box also contains all of the weird and wonderful experimental hacks that I'd been adding in. Removing all the sprites. Removing all the backgrounds. Writing random data into the levels. Making Sonic speed up whenever he gets a ring. The Magic Box has had a small following with streamers and speedrunners, and so far they've mostly gravitated towards the game switching functions. Perhaps it's because it's the easiest to understand, or because it's visually quite exciting, or maybe it's because it's the functionality that people had heard about already through the tweet. The most recent feature I added to the Magic Box was integration with Twitch. When a player is streaming their game live online through the video channel Twitch, the audience can use the online chat function to type messages which are read by the emulator. The audience can use this to trigger different glitch effects, to change what hacks occur when the player collects a ring, and with the most recently added function, write specific numbers into parts of memory that they choose. I streamed it myself recently, and with an audience of about 10 people, we found ourselves playing with a whole bunch of different games. I was running through the levels as best I could, and the audience was poking around to see what different effects they could create. 
it created the exact kind of communal feeling that I had in mind. The audience could play around and experiment using these unpredictable digital effects. And they had a live guinea pig in me, the performer, playing the game, so they could see the consequences of their actions on the play experience. If the game broke, it was okay because I'd added a function that allowed me to rewind back in time. If I had some level of technical knowledge about a glitch that they triggered, I could explain it. If I didn't have that technical knowledge, then I could share in the awe and the mystery that they were experiencing. The Twitch features in the Magic Box aren't perfect. There's still a lot of parts of this process which are complicated. Um, conveying what words and phrases from Twitch chat can be read and understood by the emulator is something I need to improve. I want to make it easier for the audience to add their notes to a communal encyclopedia of the things we found together. But I feel like we're approaching the freeform and creative glitchy play that I've been trying to reach. And I'm excited to see where it can go next. The Surrealists, like me, use play as a way of generating art. But I guess if there's a big difference between us, it's that I'm more interested in the play that does the generating than the art that gets generated. Or at least in this particular case, I think that's where I am. When the genius points at the moon, the fool looks at the finger. I'm quite happy to be the fool. I'm quite happy to be a fool coming up with ideas for a better finger. And honestly, I think the world could benefit from a better finger. I'd call it Finger 2. Or Finger 2.0. That sounds more futuristic. Finger 2000. I like the sound of that. Maybe if the grand goal of the Rayographs was to take a bit of technology, the camera, upend it and reclaim it, then perhaps the next logical step is to let everyone subvert it. What's more subversive than making the process of upending technology enjoyable for everyone, not just those with technical knowledge? Ladies and gentlemen and non-binary friends, thank you for listening to episode 4 of the Incredible Playable Podcast. My name is Alistair Aitchison. If you have enjoyed this episode, then please take a look at my Twitter feed, A.G. Aitchison. You'll also find on my pinned tweet a link to the Magic Box, the emulator that I talked about in this episode, which you can also reach by simply googling Alistair's Magic Box. Thank you once again, my friends, for listening. I hope you have enjoyed this, and I hope you have a beautiful and magnificent day. Bye-bye, everyone. <laughs>